On this episode of AvTalk, we discuss the proposed Federal Aviation Administration Airworthiness Directive to return the 737 MAX to the air, and what steps still need to be taken before the aircraft can return to service. We also look at the major changes airlines are making to their fleets and discuss which aircraft we're going to miss the most when they're gone. Hello and welcome to episode 91 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz and hello Ian, how are you? Hello Jason, I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. How are you sir? I'm good. So we've both done uh, some rather fun and important things since the last time we talked. You finally got a new computer so it stops crashing in the middle of our recordings. <laughs> I, I finally did. I've I've joined the the Touch Bar Mac Association. Oh, I'm sorry about that part. That's unfortunate. The thing is like I, I do a lot of typing, right? And so the thing I find most distracting is the the predictive text that pops up. Like I don't need that flashing in my face. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I have installed a third party app that rids it entirely of that nonsense and customizes it to put actual useful stuff there, which is nice. Oh, I, I, I should uh, ask you about that later. But yeah, uh, but yeah no, new, new computer and enjoying it. Looking forward to not having to stop recording midway through the podcast. That's good. And having to figure all that out. But other than that, think things are going well. How uh, you you moved? I did. I did move since the last time we recorded. That was that was fun. That's, I've never described moving moving house as as fun. So you sir have a, a yeah, well, strange it's not idea a house, it's of an apartment. Fun. So it's partial credit. But I did move literally down the hallway in my existing building, so it was a bit easier. So not not the end of the world. Did you just grease the floor and slide your stuff down the hall? I, I put a slip and slide in the hallway actually and just shoved everything down. Brilliant. You're never yes. getting your security deposit back. No, 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 no. But <laughs> I, I was very excited in that I have some uh, I have a, a better view facing the same direction than I used to have. And the LaGuardia when the uh, arrivals for LaGuardia are on three one, the expressway visual, they go right by and I have a much expanded view than I used to. But I think Air traffic control knows I moved and they know that I can see more now and they have not once done the uh, expressway visual since I moved into this new apartment. I think they're purposely avoiding me. I wouldn't put it past anyone at LaGuardia to frustrate you. I've started all sorts of alerts to uh, be alerted when special livery aircraft are coming and I, I'm getting the alerts but the planes, they, they're not coming this way. They're, they're just sad. avoiding you. They're avoiding me entirely. It's a it's a plot, for sure. Probably, yeah. If I had to guess, it goes to the highest levels. <laughs> uh, airlines are colluding. The FAA's in on it. Regional governments. It's about right. That sounds about right. So the big news that we were waiting for, as far as the seven three seven Max, happened. Well, basically, right after we recorded the last as episode is of the tradition. podcast, as is tradition. So, the Federal Aviation Administration issued a notice of proposed rulemaking, which sounds ominous, but all it is is saying, this is what we are going to do. 
We talked about last time that there was going to be a 45-day public comment period. That period has now begun, and as of this recording on the 12th of August, there are 71 public comments on the proposed airworthiness directive that would move the 737 MAX toward flight. So there's a few things in the airworthiness directive that need to happen. And then there's a few things after the airworthiness directive that the FAA and international partners need to work on to before the 737 MAX will, will again carry passengers. So we're looking at, at months at least. I mean, we're still in the comment period, so nothing will happen before then. But it will likely be months after that as well. So here's what the summary from the FAA about the airworthiness directive says. The proposed airworthiness directive would require installing new flight, com flight control computer software, revising the existing airplane flight manual to incorporate new and revised flight crew procedures, installing new MAX display system software, changing the horizontal stabilizer trim wire routing installations, completing an angle of attack sensor system test, and performing an operational readiness flight. So almost all of those things are, are related to the, the software of the 737 MAX. The horizontal stabilizer trim wire routing installations are, are something that was discovered as after the grounding of the 737 MAX that the FAA is requiring to be changed before the, the aircraft can fly again. So it's not exactly related to the issues regarding the two crashes of the aircraft, but it is something the FAA wants to see changed before the, the aircraft can return to service. But mostly it's it's new software, right. um, which is, is what, something that's been in the works from, you know, from the beginning. Yeah, this is what Boeing's been working on and trying to get approved for so long at this point is actually, as far as I can tell, there's no change to any hardware on the aircraft aside from, you know, the, the relocation of the horizontal stabilizer trim wire, which is unrelated, as Ian said, to the MCAS situation. But really, this is just a, a change to the software in the flight management system, the airplane flight manual, the flight control computer, and the MAX display software. And Honestly, the, the, the changes, at least visually on board the aircraft, if there is a, an issue with MCAS, there isn't much visual notification on board in the flight deck, is there? So what Jason's referencing is uh, some visuals that the FAA put in their summary of their technical review so far. So they put some supplementary material as part of the airworthiness directive to kind of explain how they got to the AD. We will put links to that in the show notes so that you can review along. I, I know it's always helpful for me to see, you know, kind of what we're talking about. And what Jason's really referring to are the primary flight displays uh, have a, I guess it's the, the top right-hand corner has an angle of attack warning or, or notification area. And it's, as Jason said, it's not huge. As far as screen real estate is concerned, so yeah, I, could they have done? I guess the question is, is always, could they have done more? And in this case, how hard would that be? Given that we're talking about, we're talking about you know LCD screens. We're not talking about singular gauges or or singular warning lights where they're either on or off. 
Right. So I am interested definitely to hear from from pilots, uh, specifically 737 pilots, who, what's their opinion? Do they think this is enough? Do they think it doesn't go too far? And that's where some of the public comments come in, isn't it? Certainly so. The 71 public comments that the FAA has received thus far generally fall into, I think, three separate categories. The first category being, great, let's fly. The second category, and I think the one certainly that offers the most insight into the process, are comments from people who, obviously, we can't verify these, but who seem knowledgeable and who self-identify as you know, aeronautical engineers or pilots, or in some cases, both of the 737 and or other aircraft. And then there's the, th- the third group that says that the aircraft should never fly again, keep them all grounded in perpetuity, you can never make the airplane safe, and you should just scrap them all and start over, or, or you know, even going so far as to say I'm never flying a Boeing aircraft again. The middle kind of category is the one that I think is you know rather important, and I think you know we're we're going to see organizational comments come later in the process, but for now the individual comments have been not unenlightening, but they haven't been you know surprising at all. I, I think this is area you know that we've covered before whether or not MCAS is a, a, a fixable fix. Really, you know the a problem introduced by the engineering design and changes of the 737NG into the MAX. So software was introduced to address those aerodynamic changes. Can a software program ever adequately address these particular changes? Some people in the comments provided say, no, this is not the way to go. Some people say, sure, but we would like to see more things. And then some people say, obviously, you know, with these changes, this is something that that can be made to work. So the comments, I think, uh, generally are, are worth looking at and reading. There haven't been too many that are, as Jason and I mentioned, we were looking forward to reading these kind of in jest. There haven't been many that seem so far out of field that you can just kind of laugh them off. There are people who feel very strongly that the aircraft should never fly again. I understand that that position. I don't agree with it, but I understand where people who hold that position are coming from. So we'll put a link to to all of this in the show notes so that if uh, if you've got some spare time, you can you can read through that, or you can let us do it for you. And we'll be back uh, in the next episode, I'm sure, with uh, additional comments. Or you can even submit your totally own sane comment to the FAA if you'd like. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah th- totally, th- this is totally. a this is a an open process. There are no restrictions on who can comment, and so that will in the link will show you how that you can do that yourself. Yeah, I uh, did yeah. also find pretty interesting in the, in the documents released by the FAA, the estimated costs of getting these aircraft compliant with the airworthiness directive. Most of this is pretty damn cheap. When you look at the software updates, they are estimating just basically $6,200 per aircraft per update. But that stabilizer wiring change costs uh, an estimated up to $766,865 per aircraft. Ouch. Or is that per 
or is that for the entire fleet? I'm not totally – actually, I think that's for all 73 registered maxes. So they are actually estimating that the software updates cost $85 a pop. That's one hour of work times $85 per hour, I guess. When was the last time you updated software and it took just as long as you thought it would? And I don't work on airplanes, which have very, very stringent security systems. And it may not be the most user-friendly thing. But yeah, apparently the FAA says it will be one hour of work to upload okay. the, uh, the information. It will cost $85. It will cost $6,200 per action for all 73 of the aircraft registered in the US. The wiring change is actually $10,505 per aircraft. The angle of attack system test, interestingly, cost 40... Uh, that is 40 hours of work per aircraft times $85 per hour. It's... This is some very fuzzy math, I have to say. That one I can't profess to, to even begin to understand. No. S- somewhat somewhat related, actually, I mean, very related uh, to the software update. I don't know if you saw this particular thread from our friend Ken Hoke, who is a, a captain over at UPS, but he was on board uh, one of his the UPS 767s, and they were updating the 28-day the data cycle. Where there's there's a set of aeronautical data that is updated around the world every 28 days that includes things like flight information regions and, and charts and, and things like that. But the the 767 still expects four floppy drives, floppy disk drives to do, perform the update. So they they don't actually use the floppy drives anymore. They use an emulator. But he posted pictures of how that works and, and of the actual emulator. We'll stick that in the show notes because that was just. I was like, "Wait, what?" And then he explains the whole process, and it, it makes sense. But you know that don't mess with what works, I guess. Yeah, I think I saw uh, an article making the rounds about the seven four seven also requiring floppy disk to update that same software. And right, right. yeah, the seven four seven four hundred is an is an eighties child, so floppy disks is it's all about that. So not terribly surprising that systems that were designed in the mid 80s would be updated by a floppy disk. And as anyone in the industry knows, updating anything technologically wise on a flight deck is a hugely cumbersome and expensive endeavor. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There you go. Let's talk about what happened in India last week. Because another 737 suffered a runway overrun in poor weather. So an Air India Express flight was on its way from Dubai on a one of the uh, repatriation missions that India ha- has been operating. And the aircraft came in to uh, some very rough weather and it made an approach over the airport to land from the east, performed a missed approach, then came back around to land from the west, at which point it suffered a runway overrun. The real issue here is that the runway is a tabletop runway, meaning that it's built on the the runway itself is built up and the land around it is significantly lower. So there's no real overrun on this particular runway except down an embankment. And that's where you get into the real problems. 
Yeah. So it was actually the other way around. The aircraft approach from the west initially tried again from the east, but the end result is the same here. So this has been fiercely debated in the last week about the safety of these tabletop runways. I initially called it not really what you would call a safe airport design. And I I stand by that. A lot of different people came back to me either pilots or safety engineers saying, this is a safe design. If everything is followed precisely, if the rules are followed, if the pilot is competent, if their briefing is accurate and they abide by regulations, and this is a safe design. But accidents don't happen out of nowhere. They happen because either there's bad weather or a mechanical issue or, or some external factor, internal or external, that creates an accident in this case. We all know it's not, we never see an accident that's caused just by one thing. And in this case, there was poor weather, which was probably poor braking. Uh, the pilot landed long. I think they were a good chunk of the way down the runway. But in this case, the tabletop runway design leaves extremely little room for error. There's very little margin for error in this case, either on either side of the runway or at the ends of the runway. A couple of years ago, in the airport authority actually, rather than resolving the issue, they kind of fudged the numbers in my opinion. They extended the runway overrun safety area by shortening the runway. So the actual amount of space, of length of the total runway and safety overrun area didn't change. The calculations of how heavy an aircraft could be, how much braking is required, that changed. But in this case, it didn't matter since the the pilot landed quite a bit long. It doesn't matter what the ideal circumstances were. It matters what reality was here. And the airport authority decided not to put an EMAS, which is the engineered material arresting system at the end of the runway, which could potentially have prevented this accident. Instead, unfortunately, they overran the runway and then the overrun safety area and went down a a very, very steep embankment at the end of the tabletop. And unfortunately, the aircraft broke apart as is not surprising. Right. And yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that we've seen in previous accidents has been that the EMAS really is worth all the money that you spend on it. Yeah, it was not installed due to the cost and the ongoing cost of maintaining it. It is not it is not a super cheap solution, that that's for sure, and it is not widely in use outside of the United States. But where it is in use, it is credited with absolutely a, a good number of saves. I mean, we've talked about this before, but at JFK, like a matter of weeks after being installed, it stopped a 747 freighter from overrunning, I believe, 2-2 left and, and plopping into Jamaica Bay. Uh, so the stuff works. It's just, it, it unfortunately hasn't been as widely adopted outside the United States as you, we would have expected at this point. Yeah. Another incident in over the past couple of weeks that had a much better ending was a lot flight that took off, hit a flock of birds, returned to its origin, took off, hit another flock of birds, and then diverted to to Warsaw. What are the odds? Is there like a, a bird I, sanctuary I at the end of the runway? I I have no idea. That's I have, that's astounding. I have no idea. 
Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I've heard yeah. of flights that take off, have a mechanical issue, land, take off, have another mechanical sure. issue. That That's like half that's of the every American, American 767. Yes. Yeah. There yeah. you go. I like how we both went there. But bird strikes on multiple departures for the same aircraft in the same flight, that's just bad luck. And and what gets me is it, it was different, you know, it was different time, you know, there everything was there was no similarity here. Like it, it wasn't they they stopped and then like the next day, so like the timing was it was just they, they came back, everything was fine, then they departed again and just how how does that happen? I guess that flight just was not meant to depart that day. I, I guess. I mean, this happened in Poland, but I also saw today that the UK CAA is installing electronic bird countermeasures at all major airports in the UK to prevent this sort of thing from happening. So, uh, a problem all around the world. And, oh, that, and that hardware can go right next to the electronic drone countermeasures. There, you, Maybe it's one and the same. Did they ever find whoever was doing that? I don't think they did. Huh. So much like, looking that. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure that someone is. It's just not us. Rarely is. It rarely is. But yeah, th- this was uh, you know an- another set of birds. But the aircraft landed safely both times and redeparted again that same day. So obviously not a huge impact on the aircraft. No, you know, serious mechanical damage or anything like that. Just uh, one unlucky E one ninety five. Exactly. Which you know, it's it, yeah. Where are you going with that? <laughs> I don't know. I, I honest, I'm just impressed that you can hit a flock of birds twice with the same plane, and that no other plane experienced a, a bird strike anywhere in between that. Strange. Yes. So one of the ongoing themes that we've unfortunately been discussing over the past few months are the forced retirements, shall we say, of aircraft from airline fleets around the world. And there have been some big changes that are are in the works. Nothing has been firmed up yet, but it looks like Lufthansa might be cutting out a good chunk of their wide-body fleet, reducing its fleet across the Lufthansa group. So Lufthansa, Swiss, Austrian, Brussels, and Aerodolomite, I, I guess, if we're if we're including them, but they don't offer wide body service. So, so just the the first four. But the the real big news is that Lufthansa may not return their A380s to service. As of today, officially, uh, there are plans to bring back most of the A380s when things return to normal, or, or things return more than they have now. But there, there's some reporting from Aviation Week that says the A380s might be on their way out in total. I wouldn't be surprised, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, that wouldn't be terribly surprising. But what, what is this you have here about the 74s and 340s? This is news to me. So the same reporting says that Lufthansa is also looking at leaving the 747-400s out of their return to service and the A340s as well, split across the the A340-300 and A340-600. Nothing has been announced, officially announced or finalized, but Aviation Week was reporting this. 
And again, it, it wouldn't be surpri- terribly surprising. The, the no. 747-8s would stay in play. The Lufthansa Group also has 787s coming in and additionally 350s coming in. So really downsizing and replacing at the yeah, same time. Yeah, I mean, if you combine the A380s, 747-400s at Lufthansa, and the A340s at both Swiss and Lufthansa, that's a huge chunk of their overall wide-body capacity. Yeah. I've been looking at the numbers today. and I mean, the only thing driving... There is no international traffic right now. Right, that it, remains unchanged. That hasn't changed, and you know, with the with the ever revising date of 2019 replacement levels. So, when will things get back to how they were last year? At first, people said it'll probably take a year, then maybe 18 months, then maybe two years. Now, I mean, we're we're already talking about 2024. I mean, and this is IATA, an organization that is made up of airlines that have historically had a very rosy view of the industry. Yeah, it's not good. So, if capacity it doesn't really need to ramp up till twenty twenty four, most of these aircraft are going to be phased out by then anyway. Well, exactly, and and that's I, I think you know one of the things is where let's just say we're doing it now and and. Take the the financial the financial package that comes along with removing these from our fleet and get it over with, and then slowly replace those instead of adding capacity because we don't need to. We're just replacing some existing capacity with new, more fuel efficient aircraft. I mean, if, if you're saying you we don't need the same number of seats and we can do our flying program with fewer aircraft, why not have a seven eight seven replace a seven four seven four hundred or an A three fifty replace a seven four seven hundred? Well, that, so that seven leads, four seven four hundred. That leads right into what you have next is that Cathay is swapping its A three fifty one thousands down to the A three fifty nine hundred. Not all of them, but a good majority of them are are being down gauged down to the three fifty nine hundred, and that really calls into question the future of the triple seven next. And does it have a future? Is does the world need an aircraft of that size in the immediate future? Your question, sir. Is a great one. It's a many, many billion dollar question. It's a huge question. I mean, if I'm Boeing right now, and we'll get to the second half of this in just a second, but if I'm Boeing right now, I've got two aircraft in development that are extremely troubled for two different reasons. The first is the 777X, which is a huge airplane. That not many airlines have ordered, and airlines are currently downsizing their order book. And then I've got the 737 MAX, which has lost 864 orders this year already. Yeah, that's it's a huge number. Uh, I, can't, I would love in an alternate reality to know what that number would be in a vacuum without the existing MAX grounding and issues. Uh, what would that number look like in that vacuum? I, I don't know. Is this purely because of the economic downturn or is this a, a combination of the two? I, I will never know. Sure. I, I, and how much of it is using economics to get out of an order that we were already going to try and cancel somehow? You know, right. I mean, you know, so we don't want these for separate reasons. How do we get out of this? We, you know, we've already put our money down. How do we yeah. get out of this? I, I, I now, don't think anybody quite expected the legacy of the 737 to to end quite this poorly. 
it's not great. Yeah, so so 416 outright cancellations. So we no longer want the airplane goodbye. 448 have been removed due to accounting rules. So basically, the accounting rules say that you have to be certain you're going to sell this airplane in order to include it in the backlog. There have been 448 instances so far this year of Boeing saying, we are no longer certain that we will sell this airplane to the customer, so we cannot include it in our backlog. The max backlog is currently 3,498 airplanes. Dominic Gates in the Seattle Times writing, comparing that number to the A320neo backlog of 6,065 airplanes. Boeing's total net order book for 2020 is negative 836. That's not good. But again, is it that surprising right now? No. No, I mean, it's not not even, I I don't even have like a a sunny, I I mean, as regular podcast listeners will note, I'm I'm the optimist, I think, of the group. But I don't have a way to make this rosy or sunny or or happy or or positive. It's just bad right now. Yeah, it's bad for everyone, everything, the industry as a whole. This is not this is not a Boeing thing. This is not an Airbus thing. It's an industry thing, and it's a world economics thing, and it's just it's not good. Yeah, I mean, airplanes are expensive, and you don't buy an airplane unless you know that you can make money flying one. And so what do you do when you know you don't think you can make money flying an airplane? Well, you you don't buy it. And that's what a lot of airlines are are doing. They're they're yeah. downsizing and, the order book and and they're saying, "Well, we don't need as many airplanes as we thought we would." Right. A lot of airlines are also expanding their fleets now and they certainly don't need to expand their fleet beyond what they have now. So really what you're looking at is replacement of aircraft that need to be retired at this point. Uh, I don't know when we'll see fleet expansions come up anytime soon, though. Yeah, like you said, these are all replacements now. You know, one of the things about you know the kind of the COVID nineteen related changes to the industry is it's forced a a bit of an acceleration in the fuel efficiency of aircraft purely by just getting rid of older aircraft. And I don't think that has as much to do with the fuel efficiency of those particular craft, rather the operating costs surrounding things beyond fuel efficiency. I mean, you know, flying a 747-400 obviously requires you know, a lot more fuel than flying a 787, but it also has a lot of additional maintenance and operations costs that the 787 doesn't have. Right. So I don't necessarily want to call that like a, a silver lining or anything because it it's both good and bad depending on how we're slicing things. But one of the tiny bits of, of good news, I guess, as far as the aviation industry is concerned. Sure. We'll take it. All right. And on that note, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about some things that European regulators are warning about that brings imagery of wasps and flies and things of that to mind. So we'll we'll talk about that after a quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back. I I promised uh, wasps and and uh, flies and, and things of that nature. So the 
FAA a few weeks ago put out an airworthiness directive about 737s that um, needed some inspection for a, a stuck bleed air valve after they had been stored. This week, the European Aviation Safety Administration is warning of pitot tube blockages. So, pitot tubes influence or, or, or take data in regarding air pressure and, and things like that to create information for pilots such as airspeed and and things of that nature. And so when they're blocked, you get unreliable values for speed and altitude and things like that, which are very bad. So ESA put out a a notice, a safety information bulletin, and about an alarming trend in the number of reports of unreliable speed and altitude indications during the first flights following the aircraft leaving storage caused by contaminated air data systems, led to a number of rejected takeoffs and in-flight turnback events. So not good. Clean your pitot tubes and watch out for little creatures. Yeah. So this is one of those things that we mentioned again that on its face will not really cause any catastrophic issues, but if for whatever reason procedures aren't followed, warnings are ignored, it can become catastrophic. And again, aircraft are not meant to sit on the ground for six months. Uh, They need constant maintenance. They need a lot of inspection before they can get back in the air. So I expect we'll see a couple more of these in the near future probably. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw additional, you know, hey, look out for this kind of things, especially as other aircraft come off the line. I mean, the the thing is that the 737 went into storage and came out of storage more quickly than other aircraft. So as we see larger aircraft come back into service, that's going to be kind of a, a different thing that I think we'll probably see some some different different bulletins regarding different systems and things like that on on some of the larger aircraft that will sit in is sit in storage for longer. So it's something obviously to to keep an eye on. But like Jason said, it's a thing that is easily rectified. Examine your pitot tubes, check out your static port orifices. And you'll be okay. Did you just recommend to always check your orifices before you fly? Absolutely. That's solid advice. I you can't go wrong. Moving on. Moving on. on. <laughs> Rolls-Royce has another issue. This particular issue being with the older, so high service life, Trent XWB84s, which are on the A350s. These the high cycle engines that are about four to five years old now, cracking has been found in the intermediate pressure compressor, the blades on some of these older engines, the stage one blades uh, on these older engines. Um, there are about 100 engines and cracking has been found on one fifth of them. Oh boy. Rolls-Royce says this is not related to the Trent 1000 issues. They're working on the problem. They're trying to find out exactly why it's happening, but so far, no resolution on that as yet. Rolls-Royce just can't catch a break, can it? They cannot. They, no. they really cannot. And and we have talked about the Trent 1000 in a number of cases, You know, from the actual issues with the engine to how it's affected airlines, especially Norwegian. Uh, I mean, when the, when the book is written on Norwegian, you know, poor, poor Norwegian. 
just in general, they, they you know can't catch a break. But you know this is one of those things where the A350 and, and the trend the XWB84s had been the bright spot for Rolls Royce. Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. So th- basically, the, the the parts four to five years old. They're supposed to last ten years. So they're wondering why they're seeing what they're seeing at this stage rather than you know five years down the line. And I don't think this has actually led to any in-flight incidents. As of yet. No, these these have been discovered during shop visits for these particular type the the particular high cycle engines, which is good. That they're looking it means at. the system is working. Right, exactly. These are the Rolls Royce people are saying these are smaller cracks than what they've seen elsewhere. They're less impacted, and it's happening on one or two blades per engine. So they're they're getting to the bottom of it. I mean, the thing is, you know, the safety protocols are in place for a reason, and, and they're looking into it. They're finding a solution, and they're finding the root cause, and that will be rectified as soon as as soon as possible. So you know. No in-flight issues yet, but just another thing for operators of Rolls-Royce engines to be aware of. So this next and last item on our show notes here just says all in caps, yell at Jason. Explain. I'm not yelling at you on behalf of myself personally. I will be yelling at you on behalf of the rest of the internet, I believe. Oh, that's good. Based on the reaction. So you tweeted, Jason. And I quote, I'll miss the A380 more than the 747 when both are eventually retired from passenger service. Hmm. End quote. That's a spicy quote. Eh, it was pretty spicy. Yeah. So a little background. I wanted something controversial to test out Twitter's new don't let anyone reply to this tweet function because I wanted people to want to try to reply to it and not be able to and see if they got mad. And and yeah, they got mad. But the more I thought about that statement, the more I agree with it. Do you buy my explanation that I haven't discussed yet in this instance? (laughs) Do I buy buy the explanation that you haven't shared with me yet? Oh, well, there was a follow-up tweet because only I can reply to it. Right, right. So so I, I, I will quote you once again. The A380 was supposed to be the 747 of my generation, a new type of luxury for the flying masses. That dream ended too soon. Aha. I stand by that tweet as well. Some background, the 747, when it was introduced back in, what was it, the early 70s, it was a revolution. It was a new type of flying. It democratized air travel in that it made it much more affordable for the masses but also brought unparalleled luxury for those who could afford it. That is what the A380 was trying to do when it was introduced. It was a very high-capacity aircraft, which could offer low fares for the masses and also offer new high-end luxuries that have never been seen before, like Emirates' onboard shower or, or literally multiple room suites or the bar in the back of several aircraft, uh, several airlines, A380s, Emirates, Etihad, Qatar. Korean had a freaking duty-free shop in the back of the plane. Those were all things that really only the 747 could have done before it practically. And the A380 was supposed to re-usher into the modern age. And here we are in 2020, and the A380 is dying a very swift and quiet death and it will never in my opinion live up to the full potential that it should have and that's my that's my stance we did not get our 747 so i want to take issue with what you said initially 
not what you just said now. Okay. I'm seeking clarification here because I want to know whether I can argue with you or agree with you. And I will do both, Perfectly good fair. sir. You know, I'll miss the A380 more than the 747 when both are retired from passenger service. And so, I guess what my question to you was, if I could have replied to the tweet, was oh, are we talking, couldn't. but I couldn't, are we talking about flying on the plane or are we talking about the idea of the plane? Flying on the plane specifically. Okay. So that's then, a good point. So the 747, then, yeah. for someone my age and in, in their mid thirties, the 747, while an amazing engineering feat and the queen of the skies was an airplane. My generation never saw the upper deck lounges or the bar, the piano bar, or anything that made the 747 legendary when it was first introduced. Yes, it was double-decker. Yes, it was huge. Yes, it had four engines and it's amazing looking. But those features that – those quintessential 747 features, those were all long gone by the time my generation started flying. To me – it was rather cramped economy seating, oftentimes very outdated business class seating, loud, noisy, which are some of the things that are charming about the 747, but it is not a modern aircraft in terms of the passenger experience across most airlines. While the A380 was everything it was promised to be until it no longer was anything at all. I think that all of that is absolutely 100% correct. I think if we're talking about, and obviously, it's not necessarily fair to compare the 747 to the A380 as far as passenger experience goes these days, because you know any any update has lead time and also cost benefit analysis, and most airlines made their 747s good enough to continue to carry passengers. You know they they weren't going to spend the money to completely refit the aircraft to keep it as good as the flagship. Of their fleet, whatever that whatever that aircraft might have been, especially as they were going to start retiring them from service. And you touched on something: the A380 is disappointing. I think the A380 is the most disappointing aircraft of our generation, certainly, and and that might be true beyond our generation. You're right; it didn't live up to to anything, and that we were you know promised for any length of time. It did ever so briefly. I, it, the, the features it promised to bring, like I mentioned, the the uh, unparalleled comfort. Yeah, I've said in the past that the Air France A three hundred and eighty offered too much space in economy uh, because if you sat along the window, the sidewall was actually too far to lean against. Uh, you're never going to find that problem on an aircraft ever again. But the promised luxuries of that aircraft, they were delivered on, but. They're already evaporating so quickly, it'll be such a blip in time compared to the 747, which is around for decades. Yeah, I think one of the things is that the 747, you know, you go back a little bit to the 707, then the 747 really kind of kicked those things into gear about the industry-wide changes in how people flew and the the amenities offered as part of air transport. The A380 tried to do that, but certainly the the adoption wasn't there. And now what we're really talking about is the densification of things, the re-cramming of people into tubes, where the A380 was supposed to kind of take that away 
it never really did. And the things that made the A380 great didn't translate into other aircraft necessarily. You mean you're not going to be seeing a business class bar in the back of an A321LR anytime soon? Probably not. So all, I, I, I mean, I, we could start our own airline and put one I, in. I, I think the, the age of the opulent wide-body aircraft is dead and gone. We won't be seeing that again in our lifetime is my guess right now. I wouldn't disagree with that, as sad as that makes me to say. Yeah. And again, some of the luxuries on the A380, like the shower on Emirates or the bar in the back of the top deck, only existed due to inefficient design in that airlines couldn't put seats there, so they had to put something there. So good came of bad, I guess is a weird way to say that, but you'll never see it a design that's quite as inefficient as that again. Right. And there were certainly a lot of, not not problems, but issues with the design of the A380 that made it less than enthusiastically adopted by airlines around the world. But even, even the, the bet on the necessity for large amounts of people to travel from hub to hub proved incorrect. Yeah, incorrect in almost all circumstances. The Emirates did make it work for the most part. But generally speaking, no, that concept never came to fruition. So there's certainly some some design issues there, but, but, but I, stand I, by I think my the, the concept- I will the, miss the A380 more than I will miss the 747 as a flying passenger due to my experiences on either aircraft. Do I think the 747 is, is a better, more legendary aircraft than the 380? Of course I do. There's no debating that. If you're saying the A380 is more legendary or, or a better aircraft, you're sorry, you're wrong. But we would love to hear you make that argument. If you do feel that way, Jason's you know banning of the idea notwithstanding, podcast at fr24.com. I, I would love to hear an argument for the A380 is more consequential than the 747. I would actually honestly love to hear that argument. Okay, give it a shot. I'm sure it's there to be made. I don't know what it would be, but I, I'm sure it's there to be made. So we'll leave it there. I just want to point out, none of this is to say Boeing versus Airbus or, or you know anything like that. This is just two aircraft kind of removed from everything else, purely based on what Jason was, you know, trying to say on Twitter, whether or not he said that well or not. I'll leave it for everyone else to decide and not reply to. So thanks to that lovely, lovely new feature. But we will leave it there. This has been episode 91 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening.